Welcome to Becoming Human, episode number 22. And I was trying to think of uh, an art piece to start with today. I like to, I like to start these and connect them with different quotes or stories or images. And I thought, you know what? I think we just need to get into this because uh, I kind of promised something last time that we were going to dive into this issue of ontology. And I, I didn't. I, I actually didn't really do anything with that at all. So last episode was all about creating the groundwork for how we can approach truth. And as we've been talking about perspectives and conflict and disagreement, this issue of, well, but if there's an objective truth, that changes things. And it does. But even no matter what, if there's an objective truth or if it's all relative, our process of knowing what's called epistemology is going to implicate how we're going to be able to interact with those things in the first place. And we need to be honest about that. And so often when we have these conversations, we're not honest about that. And so the first problem we had is in being honest about your perspective, in using both your mind and your experience, rationalism, empiricism, and having all these different tools like logos and ethos and pathos and inductive reasoning versus deductive reasoning and the, the argumentative approaches and, and having all of these various things play a role determining truth is complicated but we can now pull back and ask but is there is there a truth or as we opened in the last episode pilots famous words what is truth? And so that's where we are going to go today. And as we're on this journey of understanding what it means to be human and what it means to be alive in this world, this is a fair conversation to have. And I know it's one that a lot of people like talking about. So let's dive into these details. Let's learn, let's grow, and let's become a little bit more human. Now, I'm going to apologize up front. I'm not actually going to conclude this question. I just keep being frustrating, don't I? First of all, I don't think this is a fully conclusive topic. And most philosophers, in fact, have heeded that sentiment. This is one of the most discussed topics in philosophical history that from the first written philosophy we have, people have been wondering about this. But nobody's come to a conclusion that has just nailed it. The second issue here is that my process ain't any better than anyone else's. I'm just as skewed and inchoate. And listen, anyone who says that they aren't, should not be trusted. Slight nod to Al-Ghazali there. You have to go back a couple episodes to find out why. But if we just want to talk about ontology, the nature of existence and being, and what is reality, there are, are three general categories that are accepted. And this is referred to as the three forms of truth. There's objective truth, subjective truth, and relative truth. You may sometimes, in different circles, hear a fourth transcendent truth 
but that is more about metaphysics and revelation and ethics. Um, so we're going to stick to those three common ones. Now, keep in mind, the things we brought up last episode, dealing with your consciousness and your limits, your finitude, those apply to whatever category we're talking about here. Even if there is an objective truth, your ability to determine it and arrive at that, especially on your own, is probably unlikely. However, two episodes ago, I brought up categories of fact, opinion, and preference. Okay, and in that I said that they correspond to the different kinds of truth. So, so preference, for example, you know, what you want, that's a form of relative truth. And relative truth is something that exists and, and it's only necessary to you. And there's no credibility other than it's what you happen to want in the moment. And there are some folks who say, well, all truth is relative. That the world is no more than the immediate pursuit of whatever one wants and that's all that is. I don't think folks who say that are being very honest or I actually, better, better way to say it. I don't think they mean that because not only are, are there uh, a whole lot of logical problems with that, if everything's relative, then we actually shouldn't be able to know anything at all. Um, but there's a, a really large issue with meaning there. And usually the folks who are the most adamant about, you know, relativism are the ones that are also trying to push pretty high moral standards, you know, like, no, 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 people can do whatever they want, except they can't do this and this. Which means that they think that there's some things that shouldn't be relative. So I'm just, I'm just trying to point out that that's a, that's a complicated approach to take. There's also a lot of moral objections to that. Because if everything is relative, then morality and ethics, they don't exist. Literally, you can do whatever you want. And the only problem somebody can have is that's not my preference. And I'd like to think that most people, when they get pushed far enough into this, that they would say, no, there are certain things that are wrong. There are certain things that should not be done. Even if they're just contextual, right? So they're not saying that this is a general rule across the board, but this should not be done. So there's some issues with relative truth, and I want to be clear about that. But then we move on to subjective truth. And this is where the issues we've been talking about the last several episodes come up, because this is based off of one's perspective, and therefore their opinion about reality. And it's an opinion because it doesn't have all of the information concerning a specific thing. And you see where this is going, right? If certainty is elusive based on our human finitude, the best we will ever achieve is a subjective notion of truth. Now, notice notice my rhetoric there. The best we will ever achieve, the furthest we will determine, is a subjective notion of truth. And this deals with everything from statements of value, you know, what is the best way to do something or the best brand of coffee, that you're only ever going to get subjective on that. Um, but also deals with how you come to understand nature or reality up to this point in your life. Any claim you make, it's going to be subjective because you don't have all of the information. 
So you can't make a conclusive claim about something unless you acknowledge that you are also making some epistemological assumptions, which is fine. It's also unavoidable. And the only way we will actually be able to improve our current incomplete understanding is to work with the information we have and continue on this process. So if certainty is elusive and our knowledge is so incomplete that we can only get to subjective truth, are there facts? Does objective truth exist? And a lot of you are probably, uh, you have that image of the, uh, the, the elephant that was, has been made popular time and time again of, you know, touching different sides of an elephant. And that does bring up the epistemological problem that we can't contain all of truth within our limited experience. However, I'm also not saying that. There's another perspective in this that's called the predictamentalist. And it's that, well, truth is based on a specific predicament. Uh, this is in ethics called consequentialism. And it's that, you know, we don't know what to do except within specific context, there we can know what to do. And, and, and I like that as well. And that one's actually quite practical and it's quite honest. It's realizing that I don't have all of the answers here, but I can, I can communicate to this thing that's right in front of us that we have to make a pragmatic decision on. And, and if, you're, if you're going like, oh, this sounds so easy, I mean, seriously, almost every philosopher that's ever called themselves that has had a viewpoint on this, and they're all different. People have been debating this for, for centuries, for millennia even. Um, and so when we're talking about this, this issue of subjectivity and how it relates to certainty or facts or objective truth, we do have to make this differentiation between the human capability and the ontological reality. But if we're using the elephant metaphor, for example, knowing that touching one part uh, can be understood for what it is, right? So I touch the trunk, uh, it's a trunk. I can't see the rest of the elephant, but by experiencing this, I can know something about it. That implies that there is something that that can be called that is agreed upon. There, there is something that exists that is apparently factual, that it feels this way and it functions this way and it does this. And now we're starting to wonder that kind of sounds objective or in a particular predicament, all right, the predictamentalist or uh, the consequentialist, determining a specific thing to do, what's that based on? Is it based on larger notions that we're trying to help inform the best thing or the right thing or the true thing that should happen in this circumstance. And so we start seeing, even within subjectivity, there are hints towards, well, there's got to be something that these are being based on, right? And the people who say, no, there's not, well, that's where we revert back to relativism and listen, if you want to take relativism to its fullest extent, I guess you're allowed to, but good luck with that. That might not be a hill that you want to die on, especially when there's more information that can help us here. And so does objective truth exist? Well, the complicated answer is that there is nothing that we can conclusively say 
to name that objective truth doesn't exist. And that's intentionally complicated. The short answer, however, is that yes, objective truth is real. Or a more refined answer there would be rationally objective truth ought to be real. Now, when we say objective truth, we are saying that these are things that are provable and universal. So there are some categories that just don't work. You can't prove what the best coffee is universally. That's a wrong wrong approach to truth. You know, it's it's a value statement. It's subjective at best. It's probably relative. Okay, it's about your preference. But let me give you an example of where this starts getting a little bit messy. Oh, and think about this. Can you say that art is good? Now, most people, when we approach art, we go, well, there are uh, um, a lot of preferences there. You know, it's just whether or not I happen to like it. Okay. Well, what determines whether or not you like it? Well, it just it just sounds nice, or it makes me feel a certain way, or, you know, it's actually the combination of lyrics and certain tones um, that that determines something that I like. And if we keep asking these questions, we get to a place where we go, so is art, is a standard for art relative, or is there good art and bad art, or is art just something that is, and we only can have preferences about it? If we only have preferences about it, well, what determines those preferences? What determines whether we like something? And if there's uh, an actual finding there, we can go, well, so there's certain things that happen, at least for me, to make it good. And now we're starting to move past just relativism. But we can even go further to say, outside of preferences, are there ways to determine that certain art is good or not? Uh, David Hume actually has an entire essay dedicated to this subject. And on the surface, it's about art. It's about how we interact with something that is really common in culture, something that we're around a lot, um, but also implicates us a little bit. But really, this conversation on art, and I've had this conversation with folks, it's a way to find out, do we think there's objective truth? Because if we're willing to say, yes, there are certain things that make art good and, you know, even bad art, people can prefer it and enjoy it, but we're able to distinguish whether, you know, certain things are good or not, or maybe there's just a spectrum on, you know, some things are better than others. Now we're starting to make claims that, no, there's something that determines whether or not it's good. There are categories that are more objective. And so when we think about things like coffee, like art, but even further like morals and ethics, lifestyles, ideologies, um, the way that we live in the world, this is actually a really important topic. Because if there is something that's objectively true, then there are right ways. There are right ways to think. There, there are ways of understanding reality that are going to promote a better life and a better world. So let's get out of the weeds a little bit. A little bit. Because there are categories that it does seem like we can pursue a universally accepted and provable truth toward. Am I alive? Am I recording a podcast right now? 
These are true objectively. Where this gets complicated is in considering what it means to be alive or whether or not a recording is a factual thing in existence. And I'm not saying those are valid objections. I'm just saying they, they are objectionable enough to make certainty elusive. In fact, this is the problem that Rene Descartes, one of the most famous rationalists in philosophy, was trying to get at with this whole, I think, therefore I am. That was a deconstructive approach to trying to come up with an absolute truth by breaking down reality into its most basic things. If you could establish a, a basic uh, you know, line of truth and be certain about it, then you could find other objective truths from there. But the whole field of philosophy has been trying to say, ah, but as soon as we start diving further and further into this, it gets more elusive. And listen, there's an entire strain of philosophy that says we aren't alive right now. Although the things we do aren't uh, factual in existence. They're not part of reality. And whether that's simulation theory or dream theory, or you can go all the way back um, to Pyrrho and the skeptics to see that they were saying some similar things. But this is really when a lot of people have this conversation about different kinds of truth, this is a problem for people when we get into morals. You know, is killing wrong? Is lying wrong? Is stealing wrong? And those conversations are never that simple. What does it mean to steal? What does it mean to own something? What does it mean to lie? I mean, Immanuel Kant has essay after essay where he's trying to talk about these things called categorical imperatives to establish that certain things are wrong. But what about sexual abuse? What about rape? Or is it all just relative? Do you see why this conversation has some major implications? But the problem with objective truth is that even if, even if not killing is an objective truth, it's a universal fact, you, as a singular person, probably will not be able to fully and statically confirm a general absolute for all of existence because what many philosophers have also said, you know only in part. And so moving toward, remember I said this process toward objective truth is incredibly important because this is dealing with, you know, the basic groundwork of being alive. But at the same time, we don't have all of the information. In ethics, this is a debate between deontologist and consequentialist. I know I've thrown those words around a lot. Deontologist, it's rule-based, right? It's saying that there are certain duties that we have because these are the rules, these are the, the things we have to do. The consequentialists say, well, no, you can only determine what the right thing is to do based on the information given of a certain context because we don't have all the information for the universe. And listen, I, I think those debates are really healthy, but ultimately they're both trying to say something useful there. If we only know in part, it's going to be hard to create static rules. At the same time, if we're only using context, we might be missing something that could take things in a really destructive way. 
So we have to pay attention to all of these different perspectives. And that all begins by us being honest about our inability to have all the information. Now, we can make epistemological assumptions, right? And we can generally agree that we shouldn't kill. But you being able to determine that for everyone universally throughout all of existence is is probably not a place you should elevate yourself to. And listen, I'm also against murder. I'm also against sexual abuse. I can't definitively say that it is the only way to do things, even though I'm quite confident because I'm just being honest that I don't have all the information. And that's not a way to let people skate out of of bad ethical situations. That's a way to say we need to keep moving this process forward. So should you make an argument for those ethics? Should you use the various approaches and methods and modes to cover as much terrain as possible? Absolutely. But you should also be honest. And it is usually those who are most concerned about establishing absolutes that usually have the biggest agenda to get people to believe in them. Again, slight nod to Al-Ghazali there. Now, this whole subjective thing. You know, this is this is the challenge that postmodernism posed, right? The jury is still out, by the way, on postmodernism's effects. But one thing that postmodernism did was it forced us to consider how the specific context of individuals who are not the same make it difficult to confirm general absolutes. Postmodernism not necessarily saying that there is no objective truth. Postmodernism is at best saying that objective truth is complicated. But postmodernism also did a good job of revealing that many of the assumed absolutes were often just kind of conjured up by authority figures who had something to gain by you know, establishing those principles or something to lose, especially by people questioning them. And now we're getting more sociopolitical than philosophical. But that's a fair thing to question. And as a result of postmodernism, even in science, right, there has been this admission of our own limitations so that we see that truth and facts have a progressive nature to them. There is a process by which they move. Because conclusions and certainty are dependent on so many variables, many of which we don't know everything about. And and all of these variables are further complicated by the plethora of modes to arrive at those conclusions in the first place. It becomes very hard to have a static, finalized version of any one thing. Having a corner on the market and the last word on some topic, those In my opinion, those are pipe dreams. All of these human constraints make it so that a conclusion we arrive at is circumstantial just because the person is limited. And listen, the work can still be great, a wonderful advancement in the process, but it isn't finished. Just like our ability to come to conclusions, our conclusions will also be incomplete. And that's that's okay. So, what do we do with this? If you're still listening, first, wow, good for you. I would have turned this off a long time ago. But I'll stop jabbering now. But I want to say that ontology is a real thing. Well, uh, hold on. That's my epistemological assumption. 
But when it comes to truth, there's three final thoughts I would encourage us to consider. First, the pursuit of objective truth and absolutes should certainly be performed. We need to keep the process going. This is where I disagree with postmodernism. Certain absolutes appear to be real. It just needs to be approached as a process that probably won't be fully confirmed by me alone. It might not even be done in my lifetime. And maybe not ever, as long as humans are still finite and limited and a bit strange. But we need to be curious and embrace the journey towards truth. We need to start with this epistemological assumption that there is something that can definitively ground this entire experience universally. But we need to be sure that we don't assume we already have that and everybody else doesn't. Second, the process toward truth should utilize all the means necessary. We need you to add your voice because no one else has your voice. No one else has your experience. We need the largest diversity of people all offering their limited finite myopic thoughts because that's how we will all move the process further. This is map making. We need your subjective offerings because that's more information that we'd have than if you didn't share it. But we also need to use all the processes. You know, the modes of persuasion, modes of reasoning, deductive and inductive, the methods of moral reasoning, the approaches to arguments, rationalism, empiricism. All of this stuff is how our minds make sense of lived experience and reality. All of these are valid forms of naming what we see before us. And we should use them all. Finally, though I am pushing that we need to at least name the potential existence of objective and absolute truths, we also need to be careful that we're not so certain about what they are or that we have the final version of them. Embracing the process means considering the subjective nature of the one communicating that objective truth. In arriving at objective truth, it actually appears to be more likely if we can get our egos and agendas out of the way. Go ahead and say, it may be that, or it seems like, or even for the most part, use your voice, but use it appropriately. So when it comes to truth, there's three forms. Relative, subjective, objective. Relative, I understand why people uh, defer to that. They can be, can be problematic. Subjective, that's where most of us live in reality. It's where we're at epistemologically, is what it is. Objective truth, it appears that it's there. We need to be careful about how we move toward it. Which brings me to something else I'd really like to confront. This issue of ignorant certainty, there's a word for it. And we'll get to that next time.